Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priest and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, How foolish you are! How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared! Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening. The day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. All four of the gospel writers deal with these last moments with Jesus in different ways. Luke chooses to put everything after the events of Friday into one chapter. Everything happens on one day, Sunday, after Jesus had been crucified and buried on Friday. So it would be no surprise to you that he begins this part of his story with one of his favorite little words, Hidu. And would you believe, on that very same day, two of them were walking about 60 stadia, it says, that's about seven miles, from Jerusalem to their hometown in Emmaus. And this marvelous story unfolds, not told by Mark or Matthew or John, only Luke. I've underlined four things that I find very significant here. The first is the part about Jesus himself suddenly joining them on the road. Now, our translators do not add that word himself without good cause. In fact, in the Greek text, it says, Hiesus autos. And this word autos is always a word of emphasis. Jesus himself walked with them. Luke and the others are very clear 
that they do not want their readers to think Jesus was some kind of ghosty, wispy thing. It was the real one. And if you haven't gotten that in this part of chapter 24, he emphasizes it even more in the latter part of chapter 24 when Jesus will ask those in the upper room, do you have any fish here? Yes, give me some. And he ate it in front of them. Luke wants you to know that the real Jesus the one who was crucified and buried was the same one raised and the one who is alive with the Father forever and ever. Last January, I hosted a gathering of some of the pastors of the largest Methodist churches in America at the Ambassador Hotel just a couple blocks away. It was the 40th year this group had come together, not the same ones, Forty years before, I was the youngest man in the room, and this past January, I was the oldest in the room. In the 40 years, I had heard others talk about retirement and what they thought retirement would mean to them. Every year that we gathered, we spent the first couple of hours going round the table, each one telling whatever he wanted to about his own personal life that year. Every year, someone had lost a parent, someone had had a grandchild who was sick, or someone had a child that was not behaving, or one who had done exceptionally well. They talked about where they were, what was happening to them. But as we gathered, I, I remembered some of the really hard times these pastors had shared with each other. One year we had started round the table, each one telling just whatever he felt comfortable sharing with the rest of us about where he was in his own personal life. When it came his turn, someone across the table said, I was so sorry to hear about the death of your grandson. I'd not heard that. And I said, what? I, I don't know this story. And he started trying to tell us, his eyes welled up, spilled over onto his cheeks. He said, I've been in Houston all these years. It's gotten bigger and bigger. So a few years ago, my wife and I bought a little acreage about an hour, 15 minutes out of Houston. And we have a couple of horses. And we have a mower out there. I can mow the grass, keep it looking pretty. It's just a fun place to go for us. By Friday noon, I try to get away from the church, and we drive this hour and 15 minutes. And we have the rest of Friday and all day Saturday, and Saturday night we drive back into Houston again. I've got a little grandson, he said. He's a lot like me. His daddy's a big, tall guy, was a football player in high school and college, but this little fellow took after his granddad. He's short and stocky like I am. I love him with all my heart and often ask him if he wants to go to the farm with his grandmother and me, and four months ago he went with us. I'd bought a little all-terrain vehicle that we used just to get around the acreage 
he was going to help me that Saturday morning find fire ant mounds so that I could poison them. He wanted to drive this little vehicle. I talked to him about how he needed to be very careful. He'd just go a little short distance from one ant mound to another, and as he found one, he'd call me over, and I'd come and poison. And all of a sudden, he said, I heard a whirring noise, and I looked. He had driven the ATM somehow, the back wheel up onto one of those ant mounds, and it had just flipped over. I ran and scooped him into my arms. There wasn't a mark on his body, but it had broken his neck. He was lifeless. I ran screaming toward the house. I tell you, it was the worst thing that has ever happened to me in my whole life, the worst, to have to call his mother and father, tell them what had happened. And he went on telling us about the funeral and, and how they tried to, to get through that together. And then instead of quoting some famous theologian he had read while he was in seminary or after, he simply said, I don't know how people make it without Jesus. That was the way he said it. It's been years, but I've never forgotten it. I just don't know how people make it without Jesus. Number two. I underline this part about they urged him strongly, our translators say, to stay with them. Now, one of the scholars I read said, we know how this happens in our own culture today. Someone invites you to do something. Oh, no, I couldn't. Oh, please. Oh, no, I couldn't. Oh, please. Well, okay. That was understood in Jesus' time as well. One was not to impose oneself on someone else. So when they reach the hometown of these two disciples, Jesus starts to walk on, and one says, stay with us. Oh, I couldn't. Please. Oh, I couldn't, really. You've been gone a whole week for Passover in Jerusalem. I, no, I, I couldn't. Please. It's getting dark. It's the end of the day. It's not safe for you out there alone in the dark. Please stay with us. The Bible from start to finish emphasizes that when one puts oneself out for the well-being of another, wonderful things happen. When Abraham and Sarah put themselves out for three strangers, one of them said to Sarah, by this time next year, you will have that baby you and Abraham have been waiting for all these years. When one puts oneself out, particularly, the Bible says, for widows and orphans and strangers among you. Dr. Tony Campolo has written that he was uh, a boy growing up in America to parents who'd come from Italy. He said that his father had a story that he heard him tell at least a dozen times when he was growing up, that here his father was, a little boy living in Pennsylvania, the family trying to eke out a living. His mother and father could hardly speak English at all. They were having a hard time uh, getting meaningful employment. And they discovered that there were Pennsylvania farmers 
big-time farmers who would call the end of the day for their workers who were picking in the field and that it was okay at that point for poor people to come in and glean, as in biblical times. Anything the professional pickers had not taken, others could glean. And my parents told me as they tried to do these very menial jobs that they were able to get, that I was to be there when the professional pickers left the field with my bucket, pick whatever beans I could find. So he said his father was there with his bucket waiting. And when the foreman told everybody the day was over for the professional pickers, people rushed into that field to glean whatever beans were left. And he said his father started down a row with his bucket when suddenly he saw up ahead of him the biggest African-American men he had ever seen in his life coming down that same row, picking left and right, picking two rows at a time, gleaning every bean that was still hanging. And this little fellow sat down with his bucket, looking like it was the end of the world, and when this huge man came down to him, he emptied his bucket into the father's bucket, Tony's father, just a little boy. And then he said to him, son, one of these days you'll see somebody who looks so discouraged. It'll be a good time for you to take the beans out of your bucket and give them to that discouraged person. Just remember what I've done for you. And he went on his way. And Father said he remembered. He remembered. He told it again and again for the rest of his life what this generous stranger had done for him and what it meant to him and his family when he took home a bucket filled with beans that night. Number three, I underlined these important words about did not our hearts burn within us while he explained the scriptures to us. The big problem, of course, in Luke's day was this crucified Messiah. I mean, this was the embarrassment that the long-awaited Messiah was supposed to rout Israel of all of its enemies, and instead the enemies crucified Jesus. It was the stone of stumbling that Paul had dealt with as persuasively as he knew how in his writings long before Luke wrote his gospel. So Jesus begins with Moses, and in Jesus' time, they all thought Moses wrote those first five scrolls of the Torah. So it begins with the Torah and continues all the way through the prophets, trying to teach these two what their scriptures had to say about how God works. When Rabbi Zimmerman was here with us at the Barton Clinton Gordy series three years ago, he did a similar thing for us one night, going through the Hebrew scriptures telling us that the rejected son became again and again the agent of reconciliation. It was Ishmael, he says, who was an agent of reconciliation. It was Esau who was an agent of reconciliation. 
and he came all the way down through the scriptures, the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. He didn't get into the four gospels, but he knew what he was doing, that you and I on our way home that night would understand, ah, yes, we know one who was the rejected stone that became the cornerstone, the keystone, the most important stone. You and I know about that. The scriptures are supposed to burn within us when, whenever we see something happening around us that comes from God's book about the nature of God and that if, in fact, God is the creator of all that is, if it's God Almighty who furnishes the Ruach into the lungs of every living person, then somehow we are brother and sister and simply must care for and about each other. I read a story about a Roman Catholic priest in North Ireland. This story was told a few years ago when there was still great violence and tension in North Ireland. Remember that the Protestants on a given day every year would march through the Catholic neighborhoods with their bright orange, trying to sort of rub their noses in the fact that the Protestants had won North Ireland and had brought Protestantism to Northern Ireland, that Roman Catholicism no longer held sway for the majority of the country there. It wasn't the official religion by any means. And the Catholic priest a bishop was asking the people to please be calm and patient the next day when that happened not to meet anger and violence with greater anger and violence and he told them this story he said my mother was a Russian she lived through World War II in Moscow we sometimes forget that the Russians had more casualties in World War II than any other single country. That the Germans march into Russia killed millions of Russian people on their own soil. And finally the war was over. And German prisoners of war were being released from the stockade in Moscow. This bishop said his mother was one of those who found her way along the streets as these German prisoners of war were being released. First came the officers, and they were trying so hard to show that they still were men of dignity, that they still had pride, that they were still perhaps better than anybody else on the planet, and the Russians were having to be held back by, by their police because they wanted at those officers. They wanted to kill them. They were screaming, yelling, ranting, raving. But when the officers had passed, the bishop's mother said, then the enlisted men came. They had not been treated so well. They were emaciated, skin and bone clothing just hanging off of them in tatters. They were supporting each other, helping each other, barely making it down the street. And suddenly this angry crowd grew quiet and then completely silent, she said. 
a woman broke through the barriers of these police and from her basket started handing pieces of bread to these bedraggled near-dead soldiers. Russians stood silently and finally turned and walked away. Because the bishop said, suddenly they realized this is somebody's little boy who was made to fight a war he didn't even want to fight. Nearly killed him. Killed so many others whom he knew and alongside whom he had fought that for a moment at least we realized they are like us. We are like them. Offer a piece of bread. Number four. Luke uses exactly the same words that he's used twice before in his gospel. He's told us a story about Jesus preaching beside the Sea of Galilee, this freshwater lake. Suddenly it's late in the day, the people have no bread and no money to buy bread. The disciples ask, what are we going to do? And Jesus said, feed them. And then Luke uses four verbs, and he uses these same four verbs two more times. He took, blessed, broke, gave, and all who were there were fed. On the night that he was betrayed, he took, blessed, broke, gave, and said, this is my body, this is my blood. And now in the home of these two in Emmaus, he took, blessed, broke, gave. Did you see this week, a Roman Catholic chaplain was awarded the Medal of Honor by our country 62 years after he died. Father Emile Capone grew up on a small farm three miles outside of Pilsen, Kansas. I heard this story on the way home late that afternoon, and I googled this Pilsen, Kansas. I'd never heard of it. It's a little village about 75 miles north and slightly east of Wichita. It was founded by Czechoslovakian farmers who came to this country. It's never been heavily populated. It's never had as many as 100 people, so it's still unincorporated because according to the laws of Kansas, you can't incorporate if you don't have at least 100. Father Emil grew up on a farm three miles outside of a little community of fewer than 100. He felt the claim of God on his life growing up in that little Roman Catholic church and went to college and seminary and became a priest. World War II had come, and he joined the United States Army. He was sent to Asia, and his unit was involved in some really severe fighting in the Burmese theater. And then the war was over, 
he was stationed down in Texas at Fort Bliss. And then suddenly his unit was shifted to Japan. They were stationed near Mount Fuji when the North Koreans invaded the South. And 30 days later, his 8th Cavalry was sent into that war. They fought valiantly along the Pusan River. And then one day, 20,000 Chinese had joined the North Koreans and came pouring over one of the hills down onto this greatly outnumbered American Army unit. One man after another being shot, 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 and Father Emil moving from one wounded soldier to another. One of those wounded and lying in a ditch there said that there was a Chinese rifleman standing over him, ready to shoot him, when suddenly a hand hit this Chinese right in the chest. It was this big farm kid from Pilsen, Kansas, who hit him in the chest and pushed him back. The man said at the ceremonies at the White House this week, I couldn't believe he didn't shoot us both. But he didn't. Instead, they were taken prisoners of war. And this man whose life Father Emil had just saved, he now picked up and put on his back as they were force marched almost 90 miles north to a prisoner of war camp. 90 miles carrying somebody as big as you on your back, helping him limp along whenever he could. The concentration camp was absolutely horrible. This POW camp, virtually no food, no water, no sanitary conditions. At night, Father Emil would slip out of their barracks when he could. He is a farm boy, and he would look in neighboring areas as far as he dared go, trying to find one potato that somebody had not dug out of the ground, anything at all that he could forage, bringing it back and giving it to those who were weaker than he was, those who were dying. Finally, he had a blood clot in one leg. He had dysentery that could not be controlled. And then he developed pneumonia. Pneumonia had now been POWs for four months, and it was Easter Sunday. And he summoned those who wanted to join him. They gathered round. He had made a little cross out of two sticks he had found that he had tied together. And he began to read. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. A few days later, the North Koreans saw this opportunity to get rid of this priest who kept people all charged up. And they put him in a tiny, filthy little building that they labeled a hospital. There was no one else there, no one to care for him. And as he was being taken away, he said to those who had had Easter with him, I'm about to go to the place I've dreamed about going to all of my life. And when I get there, I'll say a special prayer for you. And together, they saw the Lord.